So this evening's uh, reading from the Old Testament is from Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we come now and we bow our hearts before you, and we ask that you would speak your word to our hearts and give us faith to believe, so that in believing that we will learn to love you and serve you and commit our hearts, our ways to you. And we know that this is only done through your spirit, so we ask that you would do that now, in Christ's name, amen. This past Friday, I uh, went to Chuck E. Cheese to finish up my sermon prep. Uh, An ideal environment if you need some inspiration and are looking for last-minute sermon illustrations. Uh, Basically, my boys uh, haven't started school yet, and, uh, you know, I thought, where else can I take them but uh, Chuck E. Cheese? It made sense to me. And so uh, we drive out and uh, walk in. And I unleash them, and I say, hey, go do your thing. I'll be right here. And I was sitting at a table by the window, uh, not really, just really focusing on what I needed to do, the word. And uh, every few minutes, they will come by, and they will drop off a ticket or two or five, you know, those prize tickets that you win. And before long, there were about 400 of them piled uh, right before me. And that's when I noticed several vans full of summer camp that had just pulled up. And all the kids that have gotten out of that van were looking into, through the glass, looking at the pile of tickets uh, with such longing in their eyes. (laughs) Literally green with envy. I mean, if envy had a face, I saw it. All 20 of them that Friday morning. I don't know what it feels like to be a celebrity, but I figure that's probably the closest thing I'm going to get to being a celebrity. To have what they have, to have what they long for, what they dream of, there I say, made me feel kind of good. So I took a moment to put down my iPad and uh, made eye contact and waved at that. (laughs) And that's when uh, there were jabbing each other, pointing at the tickets, like, oh my gosh, look at that guy. Look at all the tickets he's got. Can you imagine, like, all six pieces of candy we can get if that were ours? (laughs) Envy is not just for the kids, is it? We live in a world uh, where we are triggered all the time. Social media shows us all the things that we don't have and all the things we're missing. You know, uh, my summer vacations used to look really great until I went on Facebook. And compared to everybody else, I realized, man, I got to up my vacation game here. And my Wednesday night, you know, dinner, it was fine until I saw some of my friends' uh, Instagram pictures. And I realized, man, we got to add a couple hundred dollars to our grocery bill because, you know, the budget. Because our, our meals just don't look as good as theirs. And... All this to say, we are constantly reminded of the things that we don't have. Before the advent of social media, it was a small circle of maybe family or friends. And we would 
look over the fence and compare our lives with theirs and, and realize, yeah, we don't measure up, but we have it pretty good too. But now with Facebook and social media, we have the world before us and we are constantly reminded that we don't measure up, that we don't have. Daniel, my youngest son, he uh, loves to watch a father-son duel on YouTube uh, where they review the newest and the hottest toys pretty much every day. How do you compete with that? (laughs) He is, every day he is reminded of what he does not have. And as he compares his life with the people he sees on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, he realizes, man, my life, mm, I don't know. And maybe you feel that way too. Maybe not exactly, but you understand a little bit of where he is coming from. The world's solution to keep a lid on envy is to change our perspective. Doctor and psychologist Dr. Neil Burton writes in Psychology Today that because when we envy, we focus on what we lack rather than what we have and could otherwise be enjoying, we ought to then change our perspective and allow dispositions such as humility and gratitude to protect us against envy. I think the author of Proverbs would say, yes, we need a new perspective, but no, we don't simply try harder to focus on what we have and what we could be enjoying. We need something better. In fact, he will go on to say, we need a better promise, one that will pull our hearts and remove our focus away from the things of this world and onto the true treasure, which is Christ himself. So tonight, I just have one point, which is eternal perspective, to live life with this perspective. Envy takes root in our hearts when we believe in the false narrative that things hold a key to what we long for. Things such as physical beauty, higher income, or a tidy house, for example, hold the keys to intimacy, comfort, and peace. But we all know how this movie ends. It's fool's gold. Believe it or not, at one point in my life, I thought that key to happiness was a minivan. (laughs) I remember as a parent of four, looking around and seeing all the other happy parents driving their Toyota or their Honda around town with big smiles on their faces, and I thought, that's it. I need a minivan. Then I got one. Talk about a rude awakening. (laughs) And envy rarely travels alone. It's often accompanied by covetousness, malice, rivalry, and resentment. Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, the passage that was read to us earlier this evening. And together, they not only impair our judgment and blur our vision, but they poison the heart and they destroy relationships. What starts out so innocent, like an admiration, like, wow, look at that. Wow, check that out. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Eventually, it festers and becomes a trap. And with envy, we enter into a very dark place in our hearts. And no matter how much or how hard we try to change our perspective, 
and to shift our focus on the things that we have and the things we can enjoy, the Bible says there is a better promise for you and invites us to latch our faith onto it so that by believing in this promise that we can enjoy gratitude and experience humility that will move us to live into the kingdom reality that's shown before us. The Proverbs acknowledges the complexity of envy and all its companions that travel with it. And often the world's remedies, like focus on what you have and enjoy what you have, feel trite and typically unhelpful. And here in verse 18, the author prescribes a better solution. Listen to what it says. Surely there is a future. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. The author directs our attention to a future God promises to his people. Now, what did the Old Testament people of God believe about this future? Psalm 16 verses 9 through 11 is helpful here. This is what David writes. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. King David describes afterlife as a place of joy, of peace, and of life. And reminds God's people that there is more to the story than now. Regardless of where you are today, what you have or what you don't have, David in Psalm 16 reminds us that your story, this is not the end. And the best is yet to come. Surely there is a future, one of joy, peace, and life. And we as Christians can not only believe in this future that is promised to us, but we can begin to live into that now because in Christ, the future has broken in to our world. You see, in Christ, we see the world that will be. Jesus explains the kingdom of God as a place of love, a place where there will be no more pain, struggle, sickness, sorrow, sin, or death. We will experience life, abundant life, not just a long life, but an abundant life the way God meant for it to be. And there we will experience intimacy. There we will experience true human flourishing. And even as we read Genesis 1 and 2 and all the things that God created for us, those are just previews of what the future holds. And Jesus holds the future world before us. And he understands that these are the things that our hearts long for. And he invites us to enter into those things now. How do we do that? How do we begin to experience that world that is broken in in Christ? Proverbs 23 verse 17 says, Continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Continue in the fear of the Lord. But what does that mean to fear the Lord? Preacher Charles Spurgeon is helpful here. He writes, The fear of the Lord is a brief description for true religion. It is an inward condition 
betokening hearty submission to our Heavenly Father. It consists very much in a holy reverence of God and a sacred awe of Him. This is accompanied by a childlike trust in Him, which leads to loving obedience, tender submission, and lowly adoration. In other words, when we fear the Lord, meaning when we live in submission to our God, when we behold Him in worship, when we trust Him with childlike faith and struggle to obey His word, we can experience glimpses of what is to come. As a child, I used to love hanging out in the kitchen because I knew that whenever guests were coming, my grandmother would cook up a storm. And as she is cooking up a storm to feed, I don't know how many people would show up that night. As long as I'm in the kitchen, I get to preview what's to come. And she will say, don't tell your mom and break off a little piece here and there. And by the time dinner was served, I was full. And that pretty much is what Spurgeon is saying. He is saying, yes, the, the future is promised to us. It's absolutely certain and it is glorious. But if you begin to walk with Christ, as you walk in fellowship with the Spirit, as we read from Galatians chapter 5, you're not only going to not sin, but you will begin to experience and see glimpses of that future reality. And he invites us to come. Come and walk in his ways. Come and submit your heart to his word and experience now what will one day be true. Fear of the Lord grows best in the soil of worship. And if we are to cultivate this kind of heart, this kind of life, we must, we must build it into our schedule to be with the Lord in his word, in prayer, with one another in the body of Christ. And if I can, just put a plug in for our community groups that will be starting up in a week or so. This is a great way for you to be reminded of God's word, his truth, and live into that world together, encouraging one another, praying for one another. So please, if you're not part of a community group and you've been on the fence about it, I encourage you to do so. I regularly spend time with God in the Word, not so that I can be an example to my kids, not so that later on I can say to them, look, Daddy does it. I do it all the time. No, it is not. I need it for my own heart. Because submission and obedience do not come naturally. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as much as I leave this worship service encouraged to live out the truth in my life, to love my wife, to care for my family, and to embrace the mission of this church and loving this city well, by Monday morning I need reminders. And Monday evening, my heart is everywhere. And I'm reaching for all the other things that the world says is what I need. See, worship helps me to realign my heart by putting Christ and his gospel front and center. And this gives me clarity. There I say, 
wisdom. Psalm 73 is a good illustration. The psalm opens up with these words. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And from there, he recounts all the ways the wicked prosper. The wicked don't care about people. They don't fear God, yet they're trouble-free. You know, don't you hate people who just eat whatever they want and can maintain their, their perfect physique? It's like, man, I, I got to nearly kill myself to have that kind of body, and, and you can eat whatever you want. Like, this is not fair. And in a similar fashion, the psalmist looks over at the wicked, the sinners, and they're living life however they want. And they seem to have it all. They can do whatever they want, say whatever they want, live however they want, yet they're trouble-free. And there seems to be no judgment, no justice. In fact, they're thriving. Everything they touch turns to gold. And he's wondering, how? How is this possible? How is this justice? I mean, after all, I am the one committing myself to God and His Word. I am working my butt off to discipline myself, to be in the Word, in prayer, and yet they have everything I want. And he enters into this slippery slope. And before long, he's despondent. And he says, In vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That is until he enters the sanctuary of God. There is a shift in the psalm, a change in the mood. He looked over there at the people living however they wanted and thought, this is not fair. But in the sanctuary, he gained perspective. He gained wisdom. And he understood that the story is not over. That what he saw is not all that will be. And seeing the end of all things brought clarity. And the psalm goes on to say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is a strength of my heart and my portion forever. How do you go from, it's so not fair. They got everything I want to. I don't want anything in this world. Worship. To behold Christ the King. And to let that story Shape and form your heart. So that what you long for is not the things of this world that you think hold the keys to everything you desire, but to fix your eyes on Christ, who is the true treasure, the source of everything our hearts long for. 
Proverbs goes on to say in verse 18, Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. If you place your faith in the promised future, your hope will not be cut off. You will not be disappointed. You see, the Old Testament people of God, as they were reading this proverb, were certain of the promised future because of the past. And every year during Passover, they would rehearse and retell the story of Exodus, which reminded them of all that God did in the past and pointed forward to all that God will do one day. And during Passover, the father of the family would read from Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. After each of the four I will statements, the Israelites will pause drink from the cup, and remember the four things. That God has sanctified us. He has set us apart and called us to himself. And that he has delivered us from the bondage. And that he has redeemed us for himself. And one day, he will restore all things. And they could be confident of this because of the past. And as children began to, as, part, as they participated in Passover and they asked questions of what does that mean? What does that stand for? What is it that we're anticipating? The parents could share with them, just as he has, he will. And we Christians, we share the same confidence. Just as God has in the past, he will again. The Israelites look back at the story of Exodus, but we look back to the life, the suffering, death, and the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus, who offered himself as the Passover lamb, will go to death to claim us as his, and one day he will return to make everything new. And this is the hope that you and I share. How can I be certain of this future? How can I be sure that there is a promised future awaiting for me, one that is much better than the present? And the Bible says, look back. Look at the cross. If he is willing to suffer and die for you, what will he not do for you? And if he rose again from the grave, certainly he can fulfill his promise to make all things new, as he says. So regardless of where you are today, this proverb reminds us that today is not the end of your story. God is not done with you yet. He is writing story in your heart and your life, weaving together your brokenness with his gospel. 
and is going to a glorious end. One that is held before us in the book of Revelation. And we, along with a great multitude, would join the hallelujah chorus in saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who gave his life for us so that we can experience and know and live into the life that God has always promised us. Death, pain, suffering, and disappointment are not all that will be. Surely there is a future, and our hope in the Lord will not be in vain. St. Basil wrote, and you have this quote in the bulletin, when you elevate your mind and fix your attention on what is truly good and praiseworthy, you'll be far beyond thinking that any corruptible and earthly good is a source of happiness or enviable. When you acquire this habit of mind, you would not be obsessed with worthy goods as if they had great eternal value, and you will find it impossible to feel envy for your neighbor. As we remember Christ and all that he promises to be, we can begin to experience the truth of these words. But we're not going to do it perfectly. At least on this side of heaven, we'll continue to look over the fence to see what we don't have. But one day that struggle too will come to an end. When Christ returns, we will experience for the first time the truth of these words. It will be impossible for us to envy because our hearts will be so fixed on something far more beautiful than anything that our hearts desire now. And so until then, let's, as God's people, fix our eyes on Christ, our treasure. And let's learn to put him front and center and live into the reality that is promised us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come and confess that so often we betray our own heart, our own faith. We know that you are the great treasure and envying others doesn't solve anything, but it gets the best of us from time to time. And we want to confess that to you and ask that you would forgive us. But we also ask that you would help us to see you for who you are, to believe in this promise,